Hey there, yeah, I'm talking to you. It's The Film File, episode 56. <laughs> hey folks, hello, welcome to The Film File. The film show for film geeks, by film geeks, and what a couple of geeks we are. That's me, Lee Ford, and of course, my fellow geek, Andy Meekin. How are you, Andy? I'm, I'm still a geek. Good, glad to hear it. I'm <laughs> still a geek through and through. <laughs> I, I, was, I was worried for a moment then when there was a, uh, it felt like a, a pregnant pause where you're going to, yeah, I've kind of, I've, I've moved on. <laughs> I've left the whole geek thing behind. I'm into yeah, I'm, real I'm, estate. I'm, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no chance. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really keeping busy at the moment. I've I've watched a lot of films. Oh, I've watched. I've watched maybe more films than what we can actually review on the show. So it's a case of like, how do I cherry pick them out? I've also watched all the Nightmare on Elm Street films over the past week. I mean, I've been terrible. I'm absolutely terrible. Tell me which one you were going to include. Oh, the the remake. Uh, Yeah, the remake. Uh, Yeah, kind of just unnecessary. It basically tried to copy a lot of the scenes from the original, but lost all the terror, thrill and chill from them. At the same time, despite having better effects, despite being classed as a horror film, which is it's, which is not a good sign, really. Yeah, um, I've also started a little side project. Oh my goodness! Are, are you? Um, is this another date night? I've not been invited to. Well, this is to do with cinema, and the fact that I'm missing my place of work so much that I've start I've loaded up Minecraft and I've started building our cinema in minecraft <laughs> oh okay no that sounds good you'll have to tell me how you did it so i can uh, i can show the child because he's he's big on minecraft he had a birthday at the weekend and uh, minecraft was just dominated his his birthday yeah I'll, I'll send some pointers i mean i'm doing it on the pc so i've got all mods right. installed um but one of the mods enables you to basically do youtube videos on the screen within it and uh, talking of missing cinema you read me something a little bit interesting just before we came on air yes uh, i've had this sent through to me by a colleague from work that daisy ridley speaking about the invisible man in a small little paragraph that she's uh, submitted to a magazine article uh, about her most vivid recent cinema going memory and she was in sheffield which made us go did she come to us she says that like she was terrified and she was sat half watching, half hiding her eyes. And there's the moment in the film where there's a quick cut to an egg being cracked in a pan and the entire full cinema jumped out of their skin. And then everyone laughed. And in her words, I remember looking around and thinking, I don't know a single other person in here, but we're all part of a collective. And we've all experienced this in our own ways, but all together. I remember it more vividly because of the feeling of really being part of a group of people. And I read that and I just thought, and that's what cinema's about. Yeah, absolutely. She She's absolutely nailed it. A, interestingly, as you said, I wonder what she was in Sheffield for. And and the fact that, yeah, she, she nailed it. But when we talk about cinema, which of course we do on a, on a regular basis, but when we talk about cinema, we talk about that shared experience because for us, that's, that's what it's about. Um, I've said to you many times, I've gone to see press shows and, and, you know, and all the things, all the benefits you get with a press show is, you you know, you get it and it's silent and, you know, the movie starts, you know, I have to sit through ads and et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I love that, that element of it. And that's slightly movie fan elitist, I know. Yeah. But what suffers is when you see something like a horror film or, it, or even worse, a comedy, which has to be part of that shared experience. And, and gags don't land 
because no one else is laughing, if, yeah. especially if you only there's like one or two of you in there, uh, and it can take away that that element of 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 what the true experience of, of cinema is, and and horror films especially. I was I've said to you many times on the show that I think the horror film is the perfect date movie because it's a shared experience. You are more likely to become uh, entwined with somebody. Uh, on a first day um, than, than probably a romantic comedy, which is about sort of an expectation you'll never match. But I do think, you know, that's why we go to the cinema, is to, to share that experience. And, and she, she's absolutely nailed it. As I said, interested to know um, what she was in Sheffield for and uh, on which cinema, uh, because we're yep. bound to know somebody in that cinema uh, who worked yes. there at that particular time. But I've not heard anything, so she must have been... Well, it's it's... Uh, you're walking down the street and you see Daisy Ridley, you, you personally have a tendency to think, oh, that, that girl there looks like Daisy Ridley. But she wouldn't be in Sheffield. I, I recall a couple of years ago, um, Eddie Izzard was doing a gig in Sheffield. And in that afternoon, he actually came into our cinema. Now, I wasn't at work. I just had someone send a screenshot of the CCTV saying, can you believe that Eddie Izzard's been in today? And I was like, oh, my, why did no one tell me I'd have been down there? And then they were like, yeah, no one recognized him. And I was like, he's wearing a dress. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the giveaway. I like it, It's blatantly Eddie Izzard. It's not like he was going in low-key, clandestine. He was dressed as he normally does. And I'm just like, no one recognized Eddie Izzard. And that's what you'd get. If you see a celebrity, you don't instantly think that's a celebrity. It takes you, it takes you until they've left before you go, have I just been speaking to such and such? Yeah, I remember bumping into Jimmy Carr at uh, uh, BBC Studios. And I looked up and Jimmy Carr was walking towards me. And I just had that moment of go, I know this bloke. And I went, hey, you're all right. And he went, uh, yeah, I'm good. I, clearly not knowing who I was. <laughs> and then it sort of dawned on me that I didn't know this person at all. And I just I just uh, <laughs> recognized them from, from TV. And I was like, oh, I kind of. The moment had gone, and I bet he's just thought, how the hell is that saying hello to me in such a friendly fashion? On the flip side, I was crossing the road heading into when I used to work at Cineworld once, and I uh, saw Frankie Boyle, and I recognised him straight away, and I ignored him. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Because I can't stand him. <laughs> Our celebrity so, stories <laughs> can almost fill an entire podcast, as long as it was very, very short. So... um we know about your week. You've had lots of films, and I haven't. How was uh, uh, the the Twitter program on Sunday? Uh, MTOS is it? Is that, am I saying it right? Because I always feel I'm you getting it wrong. You are saying it right. Yeah. Movie talk on Sunday. Hashtag MTOS. Yeah, we spoke about food in films this weekend. Like everything from like films that focus around food or food production, documentaries about food, characters who are obsessed with food, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was a fun, fun little. Um, well. A fun little ten-course meal, if I was to do food-related puns. You, you missed. Uh, it was a fun chat. There was a good group on there, and a few different faces who have not seen. This is what I'm loving about it is that because the topics are so varied each week, that sometimes someone who's never got involved in the movie talk will latch onto a question getting thrown out that interests them, and it draws them in, and then they become part of the MTOS family, as I like to call them, which is the most positive aspect of film Twitter that you can possibly get. They are the kind of people who, if you say, I like Wild Wild West, one or two of them will go, you know what, it's not that bad, rather than everyone jumping on you and telling you you're wrong. Sounds perfect. So anyone who wants to get involved in MTOS, 
you can come and join our beautiful family every Sunday night on Twitter, 8pm. Just do a search for hashtag M-T-O-S. So in our program, rather than yours today, uh, we're going to be looking at, of course, the movie news. We're doing a deep dive into Dirty Harry starring Clint Eastwood. Andy's got all the reviews. But first, yes, we've all got to start with it. Andy Meakin has been trawling the internet to find out what the latest news is from around the movie world. In this segment, we call The News. So, Andy, what's happening in the uh, world of cinema? Are we going to start with a, a positive story or are we going to be thrown into the doldrums of having to wait for release dates? Uh, well, there's not a lot regarding release dates being put back, etc. this week. A lot of it is uh, production stories this week. So, last week we spoke about that GameStop movie. Yeah, we did. And I've, I picked up on what we were talking about and, and followed it a little bit more closely this week. Still don't really understand the stock market world, but that's why I'm not a bajillionaire. Well, when we reported last week, there was the one movie that's going to get adapted from a book that hasn't been written yet. Well, now... There's at least five different projects in the pipeline. Of course there is. Uh, the latest addition to it is from HBO, from the creator of Billions, Andrew Ross Sorkin, no relation, and is also a Bloomhouse production. And okay. it's, that one's described as an exploration of how a popularist uprising of social media day traders beat Wall Street at their own game. And that joins at least three other films and a TV series which are in the works about the story, which is still going on. Uh, Mark Bowl and Noah Centino are developing one film. The MGM film that we covered last week is another one. And there's a feature documentary from the team behind Console Wars. And there's also a multi-narrative TV series. So whilst this story is still playing out, and even yesterday I was reading more reports of other stock items that the that, that these Reddit investors are jumping between in order to really mess the stock market up and really prove that it's not just a rich man's game. Everyone should be able to get involved. It's probably going to go on for a while more. But... That's not stopped five different productions, which no doubt one of these will actually land within the next two months. That's the thing. There's always there's, there's always those competing projects, and there's always always the one which will, will sort of stand out, be the one that gets greenlit. There'll be it, it's a bit like vying. Uh, it's a bit like a cockfight. Everyone's uh, throwing it into the ring until uh, somebody has to. Um, this analogy is going to go on forever. Uh, has to pull out. <laughs> Uh, because uh, another production company started with it. Yet another example of how everywhere within the industry latches onto a story and tries to all make their own things. Probably one or two of these might fall by the wayside, wayside and not actually get made. Who knows? Uh, let's move on to Disney, because I've got a bit of Disney news. And the Blue Sky Studios that was part of the Fox umbrella yeah. and gave us films such as Ice Age, Robots, Horton, Here's a Who, Rio, and most recently Spies in Disguise has closed. They're shutting up shop. It's, it feels like an inevitability with the move to Disney. Competing animation companies within the House of Mouse does seem, um, I don't know, it, it doesn't quite sit as one would expect. Uh, but disappointing, I guess, for everybody involved. To be honest, um, there wasn't a lot of their work that I really, really liked. Uh, Ice Age ran out, of, uh, ran out of steam many many uh many films ago uh, and and had a general decline even though the animation was good story-wise they, they were very poor they, they were like they were they were definitely not anywhere near your disney your pixar standards or your dreamworks standards 
Uh, they were like the the lower tier animation group. But Spies in Disguise, their most recent one, actually surprised me. I, was, I, I found that quite engaging. Yeah, I heard good things about it. I noticed it's actually on Disney Plus already. Worth checking out. Uh, the 450 employees who work there are obviously facing termination, but it is suspected that some of them are eyeing up roles within other Disney studios, such as the Disney Animation or Pixar. I think it's a shame to see a studio close, but this was, like you say, inevitable. Yeah. Because how many animation studios does one over over branching umbrella company need? Not as many. Yeah. Uh, Tom Holland has spoken about the rumours of Garfield and Maguire turning up in the Spider-Man film. Well, this has been muted for uh, well for some time. We've covered it uh, consistently with the crossover and and the kind of what got that ball rolling. Even though nothing ever came from Marvel. Nothing ever came from Sony was the inclusion of Electro in this particular uh, this particular uh, sequel, and and that's got got the imagination of the fanboys sort of uh, running and drooling at the same time. I can see them running and drooling in my imagination, which is not not that pleasant. Well, your imagination is not that pleasant. No, no, you don't want to go there. <laughs> uh, well, he was speaking with Esquire recently, and he commented on the rumours. And to quote him, no, no, they will not be appearing in this film unless they have hidden the most massive piece of information from me, which I think is too big of a secret for them to keep from me. But as of yet, no, it will be a continuation of the Spider-Man movies that we've been making. Now, there's three possibilities that arise from this. (laughs) There's the Marvel possibility, which is, yes, they've all been cast. (laughs) Well, one, he's correct and they're not in it at all. And it's all nonsense. Two. He doesn't know due to not being informed because, three, he's terrible at keeping it secrets, (laughs) (laughs) but might have had a bid telling off and told not to reveal anything this time. So everyone who's reported on him dismissing the rumours have all ended their articles saying, but is he telling the truth, though? (laughs) Because it's Tom Holland and they're probably deliberately not told him. <laughs> Talking of Tom Holland, I'm hearing really good uh, good things about the movies done with the Russo brothers, uh, Candy, and that his performance is, is really, really solid in it and a, a, a game changer for him. Yeah, it's, I, I'm interested to see that. I'm looking forward to it um, landing somewhere. Because I think it goes to uh, I think it goes to Netflix and uh, the Russo brothers have got a, a great deal now, haven't they, with uh, with yeah. Netflix? So that's that's on our radar, and it'd be he's one of those actors that you want to see what he's actually capable of, how he can branch out. One actor who we're not going to get to see much of what he's capable of in the future is Army Hammer. Yeah, now this has been a, a, a weird old story. Uh, my other half brought brought it to my attention, and. Uh, I'd heard I'd, I'd, I'd have a tendency not to focus on on sort of salacious gossip because uh, I, I I find it irritable and and salacious for for a start as it's enough to put me off and so I, I I ignored it initially but now it's kind of not going away and by the looks of things and what you're going to tell us is it's escalating yes uh, this all stems from the recent allegations of his sexual conduct and his abusive relationships, which has come about through some alleged private messages that have been circulating online. And I keep saying alleged because anyone can concoct fake text messages and claim it's someone else. And Hammer's camp are firmly denying all the rumours. And the rumours include things like engraving an initial into the skin of one of his exes, uh, sending messages about how he wanted to carve people up and eat them, uh, hints of cannibalism, 
in there, which, again, I must stress that Army Hammer has been denying them. However, because of all the allegations and despite him denying them, all the public attention about it has led to him being dropped from Shotgun Wedding and, most recently, the TV series The Offer for Paramount. The Offer was the TV series about the making of The Godfather, wasn't it? Yes. So he's... At this at this rate, his career's pretty much over. We've seen this happen with Kevin Spacey, that, again, there was allegations made that nothing was ever taken to court and nothing was ever proved and it was denied all through. But what does Kevin Spacey do now except for one video message on YouTube every Christmas? It's, it's a tough one. I, I, I'm not defending anybody at this stage, but these are just allegations. And what annoys, annoys me... Um, if they're not true, yeah. then the guy's career has, has been uh, damaged, and you know, and people will use that ridiculous line: "There's no smoke without fire," which I think is, is insulting. Because if uh, if somebody wants to concoct a story about you, it's as we've said, it's very, very easy to do in this day and age, uh, and to and to smear somebody. I noted that his his partner or his wife had come forward. I, I wasn't sure who she was, and said, "You know, this is ridiculous." Uh, and she's been more vocal about it than than he has been. Yeah. If if it is true, then it's just a, a very disappointing end to somebody who, who never really, whose, whose career never really landed. He was always going to be a leading man, uh, and it never seemed to work out for him. Uh, um, there was, uh, of course, there was uh, Man from Uncle. There was uh, Lone Ranger, uh, and at one point he was he was Batman in the George Miller Justice League movie. Yep. But it's never quite it's never quite dropped for him, um, and if these allegations turn out to be true, or even if they turn out to be false, then his his career is is sort of definitely on the on the ropes. We saw it as well with um, Johnny Depp that when the allegations were brought out against him from Amber Heard, and then for a year and a half, everyone's Johnny Depp's a piece of scum, Johnny Depp's a piece of scum, and then it turns out that she was actually probably worse than him. Yeah. And manipulated the situation. And now everyone's on Johnny Depp's side, but his career has kind of stumbled as, as a result. Yeah. So regardless of whether this is true or not, people have already made their minds up on what they think of Army Hammer. And, and that's what worries me. That's in ribbons. Uh, and then there's there's no going back from that. As you said, um, as far as I know, nothing has ever been revealed about Kevin Spacey other than sort of the allegations. Uh, mm. There's never been anything concrete as far as, as, far as I'm aware. But... You know, these are these are the times that we live in, and uh, and if you're a public figure, then half of the trial for you is to be tried in public. And on a similar similar related note, Marilyn Manson has been dropped by his manager in the wake of uh, the the multiple stories being brought to light about him. This all kind of started rolling with Evan Rachel Wood, who over the past few years has been talking about an abusive relationship that she was in. And the abuse that she suffered at the hands of this mysterious person. She'd never, she'd never revealed who it was. But over the past few months, she's revealed that it was Marilyn Manson that she's been speaking about for the past few years. And now other people have stepped forward to provide stories and evidence of their abuse at the hands of the singer. With Evan Rachel, Rachel Wood's case, some people are saying, like, well, why is she, not, why is she only bringing it to light now? Why is, she, why is she not taking it to court? Why is she posting it online? It's like, because she's gone past the statute of limitations that she's been fighting to overturn for the past decade. Right. She can't take it to court because in America, 
uh, five years after you've been raped, it's fine. Right, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, uh, I, I know of the Statue of Limitations. I didn't realise it was only five years. That's uh... The problem with the American justice system is that each thing is state by state as well. Yeah. So whilst one state will have like a longer statute of limitations, some states won't. And if the instance was done in a state that is no good for being able to take someone to court, you're stuck with it because it took place in that state. You can't get them charged in a different state. It's a weird situation. For a country that's supposed to be a united nation, it's not very united. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so he's been dropped by his record label. He's been dropped by his manager. And he's also going to be edited out of episodes of American Gods and of Shudder's Creep Show, which he was cropping up in. I didn't realise he was in American Gods. Uh, I, I didn't realise, in all honesty, he'd moved into acting. Is uh... Uh, not somebody I know a great deal about, but is this looking a little bit more concrete than the Army Hammer? This looks a lot more concrete because of the way that Evan Rachel Wood has never revealed the name of this person, but revealed evidence over the past, well, you're going back a good few years, that there's more groundwork on this one. I mean, I, I can't see this being like just a, a, a simple spat with an X if it's something that she's pursued and tried to pursue legally for quite a few years. That's the key thing is she's been trying to overturn the statute of limitations restrictions to stop others from being in the same situation as her, that once they feel they are confident enough to bring things to light, they can't. So she's been fighting the justice side of it. And that kind of makes you go, well, why would she do that if she's just making this up? On the flip side, and again, I'm not offering any defense whatsoever, and I'll make that particularly clear right now, is... Uh, Dita Von Teese, uh, who Marilyn Manson was married to, has come out and said this is not a reflection on the man that she knew. So we'll just have to wait and see and see where this yep. story goes. But that's the way the story is right now. And we'll keep you up to date with any developments over the next few weeks. We'll, when we get it, you'll get it. So projects that are going into production sometime soon. Ben Stiller is set to direct a film called Bagman for Focus Pictures which focuses on Nixon's vice president, Spiro T. Agnew, who ran a bribery and extortion ring in office for years and who also tried to obstruct the investigation into Watergate. The film is based on an award-winning podcast by Rachel Maddow. Um, and you know what? I'm, I'm more familiar with that than I am about the Marilyn Manson case because uh, I've got a real, uh, a, a real nose for um, American political history and Spiro Agnew wasn't the... Uh, wasn't a, the nicest of, of uh, political operators. Um, so I'm really, really interested in that one. I think that's an understatement to say he's not the, not the nicest of political operators. I mean, everything around that era of American politics is ripe for multiple films to be told. There's so much that was going on at that time. It'll never happen again. Not in our lifetime. Oh, whoops. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only thing that compares is the past four years. Um, another Father of the Bride remake is in the pipeline. Okay. This time it's going to be directed by Gaz Alazraki, who gave us Club de Cuevos for Warner Pictures. And Matt Lopez is on script duties. Now, this version is going to take a slightly different approach than the other versions that we've seen. And in particular, in recent history, the beloved Father of the Bride series with Steve Martin. Yeah. In the original, if I remember, it was Spencer Tracy. Yep. The, the great Spencer Tracy. This version is going to adopt a more rom-com styled multi-relationship aspect within a large Cuban-American family. So it's not going to just be focusing on the, the daughter and her relationship, but it's going to have like multiple story threads all around this wedding. Okay, that sounds interesting. If you're going to do something, don't make a, um, 
shot for shot remake do something new with it and that sounds as though they've yeah. taken an approach which is which is absolutely unique and makes it relevant to today play with the concept and yeah give us something different for, for playing with a concept oh segue there's loads of games that are getting adapted to the big screen we've already spoken about you know new versions of clue or Cluedo, as it's known in this country, which are in the pipeline, and a Monopoly game, that, a Monopoly film that's in the pipeline. Well, now, Uno, the card game, is getting a film. Who would have thought that? If I was putting money on my um, stories that will uh, uh, break my movie bingo, I would never have called that one. I've played Uno, not the most exciting of game. Um, my son loves it, doesn't really do much for me can't see how they could make it into a movie but i'm going to segue after you finish this so so carry on well the film is going to be a live action heist comedy set amongst the atlanta underground hip-hop scene i'm i'm, I'm not following you now completely I, <laughs> I i i for a minute thought you said this film is uh it's about the game uno in the atlanta uh, underground uh hip-hop scene yeah okay <laughs> i can't see the connection nope no, you lost I me. Don't, I, don't, I don't think anyone who's played Uno will be able to work out how it becomes a heist movie. Uh, Marcy Kelly is penning the script, and Grammy-nominated rapper Little Yachty is eyeing the role Ooh. and producing. <laughs> yeah, that was my thoughts when I read the names involved in this. I was like, okay, so this is aiming for an audience, and it's not me. Right. So I, I, do you know that for, for years, one of the big things, they, were, they wanted to make a slinky movie and how to how to turn uh, slinky into uh, uh you know slinky the thing you run downstairs yeah. uh, for years hollywood has been trying to make a slinky movie and apparently they are in the process of producing a slinky movie however it's not going to be about a, a anthropomorphized slinky it's going to be about the, the the story behind how slinky came to be see i'm interested in that that's that's like how i've speculated the uh, rubik's cube movie yeah we'll probably go is that it will be around the hysteria around it rather than turn it into a character, which makes no sense. Yeah. But obviously the person who came up with the Uno film didn't think, uh, this Uno film just sounds basically like they had a generic script that's been bandied around and no one wanted to take. And now they've just gone, let's slap Uno on it. Yeah. We'll make it into something. The kids love Uno. They're down with it. Let's make it happen. They're probably down with rapper Little Yachty as well. Yes. Uh, Stacey Osai Kofor, who worked on Watchmen, is on penning duties for the new Blade movie. Yes, I heard this. Um, I think she's Emmy-nominated writer who worked on uh, Watchmen. It's yeah. been it's been very quiet on on the Blade front. Um, it got announced at Comic Con. Whoa! It seems like two hundred years ago now, pre lockdown, and um, it all went very quiet. Everybody got really really excited about it, and then we've heard nothing. Maybe this is the start of where we go for this particular movie because it's it, it's felt it's felt as though we've needed to hear something about it i mean I, I think the delays that lockdown caused to various productions obviously meant that things like this just didn't move forward because this was further down the line for them the star Ma- marashal ali is still tagged in the lead role thankfully and thankfully um, that I you could pronounce it, which uh, I'm glad you did it yeah. rather than me. It took about seven attempts, and you will hear them on the outtakes <laughs> on the next compilation. But this makes Kafour is the first black female writer to pen an MCU movie. Okay. Um, groundbreaking. As long as it's a, a good script, we don't mind who writes it. But yeah. as I said, I'm more interested to know who's going to direct it because I think... I think they can go anywhere now with with Blade, and they can go any direction that they want to go. They can make it uh, the first proper horror movie. 
to come out of uh, the MCU, or they can go for a much more action-adventure. I think Blade is one of those characters that is a bit of a blank wall, and you can you can draw whatever you want upon that. Yeah. Uh, no director's tagged yet, but I imagine that we'll start to hear some rumblings once the next phase of the script I'm is, in. Out, I'm in. is done. Let's move on to casting news, and there's quite a lot of casting news for the next few articles. So the Borderlands movie has scored another bit of casting. Mm, and uh, interesting, the godmother of Scream, really. Yep. Uh, the film, which is directed by Eli Roth, is based on a popular first-person shooter game series, and it already has Kate Blanchett perfectly cast as Lilith and Kevin Hart woefully miscast as Roland. Now it has Jamie Lee Curtis cast as Tannis, who, for those who don't know the game, is a half-crazed archaeologist with a bit of a sexual libido who holds the secret to the vault key needed by the group. Is she fitting for the role? Mm, not really but at this point i've kind of lost all care of it being the perfect <laughs> attention to detail of the game and i'm just going to try to accept it as being something inspired by the game i think she's a great actress i think that she could you know she could sell the role she won't sell the version of tannis that i know from the game and this is where i have to distance myself from that line of thinking when it comes to this adaptation it's not a game i'm that familiar with so I'll, it's, it's interesting i'll just come into this as as a movie fan as opposed to a, a game fan on it so whoever they throw in, if if they work for me as a as a character, that will be interesting. But that's kind of the the, the huge difference of when you um, you've you've got a relationship to to um, yeah. to a story or a, a a property. It's hard to step back at times and um, see it for what they're intending. For the for me, this is going to be a I'm waiting for the trailer to make my mind up yeah. on how I feel about it. In what's becoming frequent news item. There's even more casting news on Adam McKay's Don't Look Up, which is his disaster movie about two low-level astronomers who discover that an asteroid is headed straight for us. Oh, no. Well, that's 2021 for you folks. <laughs> Joining the already packed lineup of, takes deep breath, Jennifer Lawrence, Leonardo DiCaprio, Meryl Streep, Rob Morgan, Kate Blanchett, Chris Evans, Jonah Hill, Himesh Patel, Timothy Chalamet, Ariana Grande, Kid Coody, Matthew Perry, and Thomas Sisley. Phew. No breaths were taken during the announcement of any of those names. I was quite impressed with myself there. Now added to that mix is the ever-excellent, and we love him to bits, and we've spoken about him before, Mark Rylance. Yeah, we do. We, we, we do like Mark Rylance an awful lot. National treasure. And another actor who... He's, he's solid on TV, where he's like spent a lot of his time in iconic roles, but he's never really had that big screen thing that's made him impactful. Michael Chiklis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, best remembered for The Shield. Uh, yep. Best forgotten for playing The Thing, even though he wasn't bad in the role. Yeah, he was, he was great. He got the personality of Ben Grimm really good, but he's never really had a chance to really step into the spotlight on screen i mean he's in a huge mix of characters here we don't know how long each of them are going to be on but this is padding out to be a hell of a film and in similar news another ensemble film that we're quite excited for has added another name which is bullet train which is the brad pitt led assassins on a train film it already has aaron taylor johnson brian tyree henry joey king zazie beats andrew koji and michael shannon and now Sandra Bullock has jumped on board the train. My goodness. And they're all first-class uh, ticket holders, no doubt. I seem to think that we've been talking about this film so forever. And uh, so much so that I, I, I feel as though we've already seen it. We've, we've spoken about it that often. <laughs> yeah, David Leach is going to direct it. And it's described by a few people as a cross between speed and non-stop. Okay. So hopefully it'll take the best of speed and ignore the worst of non-stop. <laughs> but... <laughs> but 
great names, a director who I've got some confidence in. And I can't wait to see how that comes out. That's two films that I'm looking forward to, those two. Interestingly enough, he would be my choice to direct Blade. Yeah, I can kind of see that. He's got that kind of style, hasn't he? Mm. Uh, Michelle Rodriguez and Justice Smith are now signed on to star alongside Chris Pine in the adaptation of Dungeons and Dragons. This seems, again, one of those stories that seems to have been around for an awful long time. And uh, uh, I, I feel like we've been talking about it for an awful long time as well. Yeah, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons in some kind of form has been either made into film, which it was, and, and had two spin-off movies that were not that good and it's been mooted for ever since to do more Dungeons and Dragons movies and over the past few years it's ramped up because Hasbro, E1 and Paramount are working together to produce the film and they're trying to jump on this post Game of Thrones fantasy hysteria and just get the property out there. What the actual story is going to be we don't know but we do know that Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly are directing and writing the script which is based on an early draft by Michael Gillio. I've got absolute faith in the cast and the writing on it. The the element I probably have less confidence in and, and you mentioned it with with thinking about post Game of Thrones is has this kind of uh, are they just a little bit too late to the party with this? Very possibly. Is fantasy still going to be something that people are going to be interested in? But at least they're giving it a shot. Yeah. I mean, I, we could look around and just say, well, everything's either superheroes or Blumhouse horrors these days. But yeah, it's nice that other genres are still trying to get their foot back in, even though every time that they do something fantasy set, it kind of flops. They've never really worked on the big screen except for Lord of the Rings. I think that's to, always to do with the source material, yeah. because if you make it far too geeky, you're, you're not going to pull in um, your everyday crowd because there's there's so much of a connotation connected yeah. to that kind of movie and and it's a hard sell because of that and there's an unmade kubrick project that's been greenlit Ooh, color me interested bruce Hendricks and galen walker have optioned the rights to one of his unmade works called lunatic at large we don't know what it's about we just know it's one of three films that were found in the kubrick archives after his passing he had a 70 page script treatment that kubrick and author jim thompson had been working on and that's what they're using as the base for it and the planning production to start in the autumn this year and aiming to retain the Kubrick style and vision in the same way that Spielberg tried to make AI have essence of Kubrick in there, even though there were quite a lot of heavy Spielberg aspects in there that you could yeah. still feel Kubrick's presence throughout AI. Well, do you want to make this film as a homage to Kubrick at the same time, which I think is right because Kubrick's Kubrick's style would only kind of work on Kubrick scripts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think if you take a Kubrick script and you try to ignore the Kubrick essence of it, you just won't work. So I, I'm interested to see it because I'm a fan of Kubrick. And yeah, there's like they say, there was three films found in his archives after he passed. And it'd be great to see those stories brought to life. Yeah, you had me on Kubrick. Before we round off the news, a quick mention of uh, this week's Zack Snyder update. Okay, we're going to be nice. Are we still playing nice with Zack? Still playing nice, yeah. Uh, he's he's basically distanced the movement behind this, the Justice League from the troll and negative things. He's he said that the core people who were campaigning for the, his take on it aren't the toxic fan base. There's a very positive community there. And I get him with that because I've encountered quite a few of the positive ones. There are some toxic people who've latched onto it, but he's very keen to say that they don't represent him. But also he's released... Again, like we said last week, he seems to be the only one doing the marketing. Yeah, you had an interesting theory about that. If you go back to uh, last week's episode, you'll see Andy's theory 
which the the more we report on it, uh, for me, sort of holds water. Uh, he's released some more still images, and the latest one is an image of the Joker. Which we kind of thought was coming, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, he had the blurred out one that we saw, we reported on last time. This time, it's him sat in what looks like a cell. It's another black and white photo. His hair is no longer perfectly groomed backwards. It's ratty and long down his shoulders. He's got his eye, like black eye makeup and his lips uh, painted. And he just, he looks very, very much a cross between Heath Ledger and the version of Joker that Leto showed us in Suicide Squad. It's an interesting image. Interesting. How it looks once it's all in colour and how much it actually impacts on the film, we don't know. We'll find that out next month. So folks, if it's the first time you've seen it and you're wondering why he hasn't got green hair, just pointing out it is in black and white. Yeah, I mean, it is worth noting that in the comments thread on the reveal of this on Facebook, one person was really adamant that it was terrible because Joker's supposed to have green hair. And regardless of how many people were pointing out to him, it's a black and white photo. He wasn't getting it. And he complained (laughs) constantly about it's got the wrong colour scheme. It's a black and white photo. Bless. Yeah, but but his clothes should be this colour. It's a black and white photo. (laughs) Bless. Um, And... We round off the news this week with yet another sad departing. Yes, indeed. Um, an actor, uh, well, I would go even go further, a, a proper star, a proper um, uh, movie star in, in the terms of somebody who could play absolutely anything. And we'll talk about some of the roles they had. Uh, and that's the sad loss of uh, Christopher Plummer, who, uh, let's be perfectly honest, died at the ripe old age of 91 and had a fantastic innings because of that and i th- and i think the the thing about christopher Plummer is that we've all got at least one uh, uh great memory of a, of a of a perfect christopher Plummer role you could start you could go for the one that's the iconic and that's as the head of the von trapp household in sound of music his moments on screen and i oh it kind of makes me tear up when he's singing gabriel bass are absolutely magnificent but I think from an early age, well, I say early, you're looking at like my teenage years when I suddenly recognized exactly who he was. I recognized him underneath Klingon makeup yeah, as General Chang, a Shakespearean obsessed Klingon in Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country. And he was magnificent. Well, because he was so theatrical. He was a, he was a, a theater a theatre actor, wasn't he? He was Canadian by birth and a, a, a theatre actor. And, and to some extent... He, he he kind of looked down a little bit on his role in in uh, Sound of Music. It's not a film that I've 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 got much love for, and I know it's a classic. I think I was forced to watch it, and that that never <laughs> helps. And it wasn't his his favorite role, but he he brought that theatric to to Star Trek. He's another one of those actors, and we mentioned last week about Gene Hackman is one was one of those actors that you can't really think of a bad performance by him. Yeah. And Christopher Plummer is exactly the same, that I struggle to try to think of a time that I saw him in a film and thought, uh, that was a bit weak. He always gave his best and he was always magnetic on screen. And still working. You know, and, you, and uh, kids, if you if you don't know Christopher Plummer, uh, go back to even, I was going to say last year, uh, with Knives Out. Was it last year or year before? Who knows now? Year before, back end of the year before. Um, yeah, he played Harlan Thromby the um, author and head of the household who passes away in Knives Out, that the investigation's all about how he died. Uh, but, you know, he's been in films such as 12 Monkeys, Malcolm X, A Beautiful Mind, Syriana, and, yeah, even his voice, his voice in Ch- as Charles Munce in Up was absolutely perfect for that character's 
performance. Absolutely marvellous actor. Really sad. Another sad loss, but a sad loss at a ripe old age and a great back catalogue of films that if you've not seen them, go and explore the history of Christopher Plummer. He was, uh, he played Mike Wallace, the investigative uh, journalist in The Insider for Michael Mann. Uh, of course, he replaced uh, at the last minute Kevin Spacey in All the Money in the World. He was in uh, Beautiful Mind. Uh, recently, he was in The Man Who Invented Christmas. He played Scrooge in that. He was in Danny Collins. He played Sherlock Holmes in the brilliant and, and much unseen Murder by Decree, which is the Jack the Ripper one. Of course, he was in the Pink Panther movies. Played Sir Charles Lytton in Return of the Pink Panther. Knocked it out as uh, Roger Kipling in The Man Who Would Be King, which is another all-time uh, favourite movie. But the film where he, he did it for me, because I think it's an absolutely one of the most stunning, malevolent screen presence of any film that I've ever seen. He, and and a, basically could scare, scare the living pants off you. He, he played the villain in a little scene Canadian film called The Silent Partner opposite Elliot Gould. If you've not had chance to see it, try to get to see the silent partner because he is absolutely phenomenal as as, as the villain in it. Uh, Elliot Gould is just Elliot Gould, who's great all the time, but it's a, it's just a masterful performance uh, and a great little thriller. Um, and of course, he played the emperor in the uh, not so much uh, highly regarded Star Crash, which uh, bless him, he's been in and kind of every well, kind of every kind of genre you name it, he's been in it. Yep, very versatile actor. Condolences to his family and friends at this time. His memory will live on in the great work that he gave us. Absolutely. And that, as we say, is the news. If you're enjoying the show so far, then please stick around. Uh, and while you're at it, hit that subscribe button and become a regular to the film file. And of course, if you are a regular and you love the show, then please leave a comment. Leave a review. Let us know what you think about the series. And you know what? If you've got any ideas, chuck them on either a Twitter where you can find us at Filmfile UK. Or check us out on Instagram. Filmfile UK. And why not send us an email? Podcast at filmfile.uk. Lovely. It's good that we've got a theme with like the, the you just have to remember the one name. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is. None of those. Hang on. Let me just go and have a look. It's at something. I remember that much. So over the last, uh, well, I was going to say last few weeks, but over the last year, and it really is coming to a year of lockdown. Um, March, I think it is, is when we all started. And we were starting to feel the uh, the cold hand of COVID sort of stretching itself across the country about this time, just 12 months ago. Uh, we developed a feature of deep dives to keep ourselves interested where we couldn't get into a cinema to make those reviews. This week's deep dive is a personal favourite and a film that really does deserve a deep dive. And that's Clint Eastwood in Dirty Harry. Clint Eastwood. Dirty Harry. They call him Dirty Harry for lots of reasons. And he kept inventing new ones. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? 
You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Clint Eastwood. Dirty Harry. Rated R. Released in 1971, Dirty Harry is an action thriller produced and directed by the great Don Siegel and is the first in what might be, well, what might be said to be an unnecessary series. Clint Eastwood played the title role in his first outing as a San Francisco Police Department inspector, Dirty Harry Callahan. The film drew upon the real-life case, interestingly, of the Zodiac Killer as the Callahan character seeks out a, um, a similar vicious psychopath known as the Scorpio Killer. The film was a critical and huge commercial success and became iconic and set the style basically for a whole genre of cop movies that followed. Four sequels uh, soon followed after the success of the original, Magnum Force in 73, which is my particular favourite Dirty Harry movie, um, the Enforcer, Sudden Impact, uh, which was directed by Eastwood himself. And then finally, The Deadpool in 1988. In 2012, the film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically and aesthetically significant. And you know what? It's one of those films that I absolutely love. So I'm going to hold my hand up right now and I'm going to say, I only got round to watching Dirty Harry for the first time three days ago. <laughs> oh, really? That, that <laughs> yeah. is a surprise. I mean, uh, yay for, for having the honesty to hold your hand up. I'm really intrigued then to, to A, wonder why it's taking you so long, because it has been around since 1971. Uh, and what did you think of it? Well, this is one of those, I've got the whole Clint Eastwood collection on DVD, and it's, it's on the shelf behind me. And uh, when I've been doing my video things on YouTube, whenever there's a Clint Eastwood film come up that I've not watched, I always lean to the side and point over to say, it's over there, and I've not seen it. And for some reason, I just never got around to Dirty Harry. I had watched his 80s ones, which is probably why I've not gone back and watched Dirty Harry, because they weren't good. No, they are the sequels <laughs> of Diminishing Return, in perfect honesty. Sudden Impact and The Deadpool. Well, I'll talk about the problems with them in a bit. So I think they kind of put me off watching the earlier films because yeah, I just didn't get what the fascination was. As I said a couple of episodes ago, I've started work on doing the, all the Clint Eastwood films and I'm going to watch everything that's in that DVD collection behind me. That's a lot of films. And so I got a chance to sit down and watch it. And I was really, really pleasantly surprised. Phew. I mean, I'm actually, I'm, I'm really pleased. I was wondering where you were going to go with it, especially as, as you felt it felt it was uh, uh, tainted by the, the other movies, which if you're kind of doing it backwards, yeah, then you would be. I mean, it, the aspect of having a cop who's maybe as bad as the criminals that he's chasing is such a refreshing take on the cop genre that you can see elements of Dirty Harry in things that followed, including uh, 2080's Judge Dredd, which is clearly inspired by the fascist cop being taken to another level. But it's having that aspect there. It might not have worked if it was given to someone else. And I, I have read articles that have said that a number of names passed on the role because of the violence in it. John Wayne, Sinatra, Robert Mitchum, Steve McQueen, George C. Scott. I, this is a film with a character that I think only someone like Clint Eastwood could get away with yeah i mean clint eastwood at this point was coming off the huge successes of uh, of the uh, the dollar movies and yeah. was really at the at sort of the height of his stardom when, when dirty harry came along and was 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 an edgy role as you said a lot of actors turned it down uh, and as you said George uh, e. scott claimed it was just too violent for him frank sinatra was connected to the role for a long time and then when it happened it was um 
you, you just cannot imagine anybody else but but Eastwood playing that role. It's like you say, he came off the back of the Spaghetti Westerns Dollars trilogy. In that, he plays a very ambiguous character. It's a character that you don't know whether he is a good guy or a bad guy. He's got both aspects. And Dirty Harry's exactly the same. Are you supposed to root for this rather fascist cop who's like willing to break the law in order to fulfill his duty for the law? Well, not always, but you're supposed to realise that he's a necessary evil. Yeah. He's a necessary presence in order to take out the kind of criminals that he's confronted with in that society. The film, watching it today, it was striking how very 70s the film was. Which which is my love of it, because I, I my absolute... My introduction to cinema was 70s cinema, and, and that's always stuck with me. And I, I, I think of cinema as 70s cinema, and... Uh, occasionally when you get a movie like the first Tom Cruise, um, Jack Reacher one, which yes. had that sort of 70s vibe. I, I'm just drawn to it. It's it's it, it's my love of cinema started with 70s cinema. It, it wastes no time with setup. It gets straight into a sniper killing someone in a swim pool. Uh, the flippant sex, sexism throughout the film is very 70s. The casual racism in the film is very 70s. But the thrill of the chase and the action still works, even if the blood is that rather bright red 70s blood that there used to be in films. <laughs> but what I, what I found really striking was that the subtle, dark humour embedded within the film. Yep. There was little lines of dialogue that just make you chuckle. The character of Harry Callahan could have just been a really unlikable, stern-faced, I'll-do-anything to catch the bad guys but his little throwaway lines and just even a comment about like what happened to your last partner and you get this feeling that his partners last like two days before they're either shot or he just gets rid of them and it, i mean i know that became kind of like a running joke in the series which is part of the reason why it kind of diminishes because it embraced some of the jokey aspect of it a bit too much later on but yeah i, I found it really engaging I found it really compelling and I went straight on to watch Magnum Force the next day because I wanted to explore the character more. And whilst you say that it's your favourite of the series, it's it's not my favourite. I think Dirty Harry so far is still the, the top tier of it. But Magnum Force was a really good follow-up. It is. You know, I, and, and, and just to interject on that, I, I, I really like Magnum Force because even though at the end of Dirty Harry it doesn't make a lick of sense... <laughs> with what the character goes through at the end of that movie and throws away the badge. Spoilers, but the film did come out in 1971. There's just something I, I like about Magnum Force uh, and that dichotomy of the character having to face uh, a vigilante. Um, clearly, Dirty Harry is the better written film. It's the better director film. It's the cleverest film. But I've just, I've, it's, it's for some reason, I've always just had a, a, a soft spot for, for Magnum Force. But I've got to point out that Dirty Harry is the better film, and arguably, yeah, it, it was it was all the things you said about the humour. It's it's down to to Eastwood and and the fact that Eastwood made it such a, a a signature role with the second film. I think what really made the second film work is that it didn't suffer from sequelitis of just doing the same thing, because in the second film, it's corrupt police that he's fighting against. Yeah, it's the corruption within the force itself. So it basically flipped. The story from the first film went, well, you know what? We've said that cops are bad. We know that Callahan himself can be bad, but here's some worse cops on the inside that he doesn't agree with. Yeah. And I love that aspect. I love that we get to see that, okay, he might break the law himself, but he's still trying to respect the law at the same time, whereas these guys weren't. Yeah. Absolutely. A good double bill. I then went on to um, the third film, and I can see it really de deteriorating by that point. 
And eventually I'll get round to re-watching uh, Sudden Impact and the Deadpool. Don't feel you have to. You know me, I'm a completist. And when I revisit something and fill in me gaps, I also revisit everything regardless. I want to have everything and I want to go back with fresh eyes because I haven't seen the Deadpool since it actually came out. That's how long ago it was. And that's what an impact it had on me. And I think when it came to those 80s films, the problem that the series had by that point is that they'd been spoofed. Yeah. I mean, the Naked Gun film even took the line of, yeah, well, when an adult male is chasing a female with intent to commit rape, I shoot the bastard. That's my policy. And spun it to be, well, I see five weirdos dressed in togas stabbing a guy in the middle of the park in full view of 100 people. I shoot the bastards. That's my policy. It was Shakespeare in the park. (laughs) And in the mid 80s, we had a a beloved TV show that I used to watch, Sledgehammer. Yes, I remember Sledgehammer. Boy, you're you're probably the only other person I know who who can remember Sledgehammer. Oh, it was great. It was clearly a parody of the Dirty yeah. Harry character. It had, it, you know, it was a cop who will do anything, who keeps crashing into things and blowing up buildings and it, the city destruction that goes on when he's trying to take down criminals because that was playing on. The, I mean, you saw it in The Enforcer. In the opening scene of The Enforcer, they want a car. I'm going to give them one. And he drives a car into a shop window. He's like, we don't need this. No, And because it became a parody of itself and it had been parodied other places, by the time it came to those 80s films, it was like, you know what? You're out of date. Yeah. I mean, and, and the fact that Dirty Harry is, uh, is, a, is a, basically is a fascist cop. Um, yeah. And as you said, he's, uh, you know, send, send somebody who's worse in, than the criminals to, to get the criminals. Uh, and, and the reason it worked so well is that, we, that we'd seen the transition for uh, Eastwood coming out of the Westerns to, to give this now iconic performance. Uh, and, and there was that, that, that hint of humour that came with it and that sort of knowingness. Uh, and, and as we said, a lot of other, other actors turned it down. And, uh, Marlon Brando was considered Paul Newman, but they wouldn't do it because of sort of the right wing. A shadow that hangs over the film, the, the, the sort of fascist film. But I think it works because, A, it's a great script by John Milius, um, which echoes a lot of sort of the, the, what we know about John Milius as a writer. Uh, I didn't know that Terrence Malick had written a, a draft of the film. It's the fact that it's based around this, this almost true event with the, Scor- uh, the Scorpio killer being the Zodiac killer. And it just makes the, this, this idea that, that this was a very dangerous city to be in and you needed a dangerous cop to, to make it work. And then there's, of course, the iconic ending, which is because of that, the sequels don't really kind of make a, a lick of sense. And that's this, the final scene where he throws the, the badge into the water, which yeah. is, uh, it was a bit of a homage to High Noon. Uh, and the Eastwood didn't want to end, end the film like that. It, it from, from his point of view, it believed that Callahan was quitting the police department and Siegel argued that tossing the badge was instead Callahan's indication of casting away the inefficiency of the police force and, and therefore bureaucracy. And it was once it was shot, and they were shot both ways, that Eastwood accepted it. But it always made it harder to understand the sequels because it, they never felt quite like the same character as they went on after Magnum Force. Uh, but it is, it's a superb film. And, and it's yes, it's a time capsule. It's a film of its era. Siegel is, is just a superb director and couldn't think, I can't think of anybody who could have made the film any better. And that was what was also missing in, in the sequels, was his strength as a director. Um, absolutely fantastic film. Um, time capsule, yeah, uh, dated, somewhat problematic, 
but you can't apologize always for the past. And and it's just a, a brilliantly written, brilliantly acted, incredibly directed movie, uh, an absolute classic. And if you've not seen it, then it's definitely worth uh, taking a look back and um, you won't be disappointed. Excellent. So uh, moving on to the films that Andy has seen and caught up, and I've been very remiss over the last uh, uh, couple of weeks with what I've seen, but Andy's been doing the viewing for the both of us. It's a bit like, eating for the both of us, but he's viewing for the both of us. I've got really nothing to add this week. I watched Bill and Ted Face the Music because it was the kid's uh, birthday and he uh, it was his birthday film. I know you and I disagree on it. Uh, and to some extent, didn't quite land the second time. I think the first time, uh, the love went out of it. You're swept up at it the first time. Yeah, I think, you know, the love sort of... Sort of um, uh, went on the second time, but it was okay. I only ever need to see it once. Yeah. But that's been about it. And I've been catching up with the final season of Daredevil because I got way, way behind and I thought it's it's time to catch up. Uh, um, of course, we've got to talk about uh, WandaVision, but Andy, what are the, what are some of the movies that you've, uh, you've seen over the last week? Before I get to the movies, I just want to also mention that I've, uh, spinning off from me watching the Nightmare on Elm Street films, I thought Robert Englund, oh, he was in V, so uh, V is currently on your Now TV or Sky catch oh, really? boxes from Sci-Fi, and me, the wife, and my daughter have watched the first miniseries, and we've got the final battle three-parter to watch, and my daughter was engrossed. It's it still works today. Watching it today is still a marvelous miniseries. The effects are dated, but the story is brilliant. And I've also um, subscribed to Apple TV on your recommendation. Oh, good to discover things like Ted Lasso, which I've heard great things about. Uh, I mean, so oh, many people I know marvelous. have seen Ted Lasso and have just said you've got to watch it. I've started watching the morning show with the wife. We've got the M. Night Shyamalan. Servant, yeah, highly recommended. Currently on my radar. So I'm going to spend the next month working through them. But then we get to the films. And I, I mentioned the Apple TV thing because one of the films that I will quickly mention is on there and it's one that I've been wanting to watch for a while. But the first film they're going to talk about is Malcolm and Marie on Netflix. You are by far the most excruciating, difficult, stubbornly obnoxious woman I've ever met in my entire life. I fucking love you. Oh, he's so sensitive. He's romantic. Very sweet, right? Well, I mean, yeah. When he's not being an emotional fucking terrorist. Oh. <laughs> I love the way you see the world, Marie. Malcolm and Marie sees Zendaya and John David Washington in a romantic drama which follows a filmmaker and his girlfriend after they return from a film premiere and they're awaiting the critical response to the screening. As they're chatting, the events take a turn when revelations about their relationships begin to surface. Now, this film was a huge hit at the festivals, but it's had a very mixed reception this weekend. I noticed that, yeah. And and, uh, initially, I must admit, I was quite interested in seeing it, but it was some of the reviews that that made me falter. Yeah, some online critics and commenters are lambasting it for either being dull, a blatant attack on critics by a writer, or, as I've seen some people say, it's an embarrassment for all involved, and I hope that they'll do better films after this. That seems a bit harsh. So, So with that, I put this film on. And I actually found it to be quite engaging, to be truthful. It's basically structured around an argument that dies off, but then resurfaces a few times as the couple wind down after the celebration. The initial argument stems from his not acknowledging her in his thanking speech at the showing. 
despite her feeling that she was his muse for most of the script. As he throws out the names of exes that inspired him more as a spiteful, angry attack, it obviously escalates the tensions of the couple. And in amongst it is a few rants about the aspects of the industry and the critics' approach to the industry, conveyed in an almost comical rant kind of manner. Now, a fair few people have pointed out that the film is forced by Malcolm not simply admitting he was wrong not to mention him in his acceptance speech, and the argument would have been avoided. <laughs> Welcome to my life, quickly, I'll just point out, because it sounds very close to home right now. Clearly, some people have never been A, slightly <laughs> drunk, and B, in an argument, because what I saw was exactly how overreactive people get when they've had a bit of a good night but their partner hasn't and they haven't realised it until they get home and go, what's wrong? And then one of them says, you didn't do this and you get defensive because the alcohol's still in yet, you're still riding a bus and you're not going to admit that you were wrong because that's not how arguments happen. <laughs> and plus, you could argue that every film in history are forced by way of an early setup that could be easily be avoided. So it's a bit of a stupid argument against the film to say he should have just said sorry in the first five minutes. The whole idea of the film is supposed to be this argument and I thought that it did flow naturally it was the kind of like you get to a point in an argument where you're just talking nonsense you're ranting at each other but then you back off you kind of go look let's 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 reconcile and you try to start getting back together but one of you still got that little bug to bear and you spark it off again and that's what you see through this film and I thought it was a really refreshing take on a two-person two-person argument stage play and that's where one of the problems of the film comes because it's set in one location, which is beautifully shot. I must say that the cinematography in this is marvellous using the house that they're in. I, I want that house. It looks amazing. <laughs> it's black and white, isn't it? Yes. It's marvellous. It looks marvellous. And the cast, Zendaya and John David Washington, are mesmerising on screen. But at times it feels stagey and more because it feels at times like John David Washington is reading lines of writing script that a writer wanted to get out to have a go at the industry or critics. Right, right. Some of his rants, they are amusing in the way he does them, and he gives it passion, and he's stepping out next to his pool and like really like, ah, 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 and really having a go and arguing his points. But you can't help but sit there thinking, yeah, this was written just to get these points out, and this doesn't feel natural. Although I say that, and then I'm realised that I myself tend to go off on 10-minute rants every now and then, <laughs> that people just stand round and watch me as I just completely just get lost in it. So maybe it is natural, but it does break it away from feeling like a film at times. Would you recommend it? I, I would recommend I think I can kind of understand some people who are saying, I didn't get it. I couldn't relate to them. They were unlikable characters. And I get that because he comes across as really selfish and she comes across as... She wants to be a martyr to the cause. And it's hard to like them. But I think that's the point. They're supposed to not be perfect characters. That's why they're arguing for one and a half hours. They're not perfect. And so I'd recommend it. It's not the great film that the critics at the festival seem to say. But it is a solid a solid character study more than anything else. And at not one point, not one point during the film did I feel that I wanted to do something else. I didn't feel like, oh, I've had it with this. Oh, is he still arguing? Is he still ranting about critics? I was captivated with it, and I thought that the performances were absolutely marvellous. Zendaya actually got a chance to play a character that's more her age now, 
rather than playing a 16-year-old that she right. seems to be constantly cast as. And John David Washington, he wasn't sold to me in Tenet. No, no. I, I, one of the problems that I do have with Tenet was his performance or to some extent lack of performance with it. But I, I don't know if that was down to the lines he was given and the direction he was given. For that kind of movie, I thought I, it felt underplayed. I thought he was much better in Black Klansman than he was in in, uh, yes. in Tenet. Films like Black Klansman and in this, he gets a chance to play with a bit more range. He gets a chance to do do something that stands out. And yes, whilst it does sound stagey at times, you know what? It's worth seeing. Okay, that sounds good. However, my absolute recommendation for this week, and this is one that when I sent you the message about it, you were like, <laughs> I told you, Greenland. What's going on? Train derailed across the highway. If you are hearing this broadcast, seek shelter immediately. What do you think it is? No idea. Oh my god, John, go! Shut the back! Cover Nathan! The only thing people want to talk about today is this interstellar comet called Clark. NASA's saying it appeared out of nowhere from like a different solar system. This is that fragment entering the lower atmosphere. Three, two, one, an impact. What is the explosion? It's a chunk of rock. Rocks don't explode. <laughs> yeah, tell that to the dinosaurs. The sky's on fire. Come on, let's go. With the largest fragment expected to hit in less than 24 hours, space agencies are expecting an extinction-level event. The greatest chance of survival are the bunkers in Greenland. We're going to go. Got to go now. Okay. You're such a brave guy. You know that? I swear I will get us under those bunkers. Because we're always going to be together. Go, go, go! Greenland. Now, we spoke about Greenland. Yeah, we saw, we were watching a movie and we saw the trailer for Greenland. And I said, that looks kind of interesting. I think I'm in. And you went, poppycock, dear boy. Um, <laughs> your your exact, exact words. words. <laughs> um, poppycock, dear boy. It looks like a uh, fill in the ripoff right here. And uh, it seems I may have been proved right. When we saw that trailer last year, and we spoke about it on the show after we'd seen it, and I was like, it's just Gerard Butler doing another end-of-the-world thing like Geostorm. It looks trash, effects-driven garbage. And so despite having that initial <laughs> feeling for the film, <laughs> I showed my true professionalism and gave it a chance. And I switched it on when it landed on Amazon this weekend. And you know what? Both me and the wife really enjoyed this. I've heard very good things about it um uh i've seen a couple of sniffy reviews uh, i must be honest but some people like yourself whose judgment i trust impeccably have said very good things about this movie now the story of the film is that gerard butler is uh, a construction engineer and like building designer who gets a strange message on his phone um while it, around the world, all focuses on this comet that's passing past the Earth and it's coming close and, oh, it's, it's going to look beautiful in the sky. And he gets a strange message from the government on his phone saying, await further instructions, you've been selected. He goes back home with his wife, who he's been split from for a bit due to him messing around. So he's reconciling with her and his kid and they're having a little dinner party. And 
the message comes up on the screen again because chunks of this comet are starting to crash into Earth and cause some damage and things look a bit more serious. And it turns out that, yes, the, they've, already pla they've already worked out that the Earth's got 48 hours to go before a big enough chunk to basically wipe out all life on Earth is going to hit. And people have been selected to go to Greenland, get flown over to Greenland for underground bunkers that have been set there so that mankind can survive. And it sounds like your typical... Well, disaster movie. It looks. It sounds like at this Armageddon. stage... <laughs> Armageddon and, and uh, very Roland Emmerich at this stage. However, this is less Armageddon and it's more Deep Impact. And if you remember when Armageddon and Deep Impact came out, Armageddon was the big like spectacle and it's all about the effects and the devastation. Woo! Action adventure. Whereas Deep Impact was, well, these things are going on in the background, but we're focusing on these characters and this is a character journey. And that's what this film was and that's what connected me to it. Gerard Butler is absolutely brilliant in the role. He gets a chance to actually act. Because we, we know he can. We know he can. We know he can. But he hasn't really done it much for the past few years because he's been doing too many generic action films. And casting him against someone like Marina Baccarin, who really, really should be in a lot more films. She should be a bigger name than what she is. She's absolutely marvellous. They are convincing as a, a dysfunctional couple who are trying to raise their kid the right way. And the aspect of focusing on them means that when they've got their dinner party going on and the message appears on the screen with the instructions are coming through, for where you go for your flight and the neighbors go take us with you and it's like we can't you can't do it and it leads to harrowing moments of them having to tear themselves away from close friends and family who they can't take with them and the whole film plays this kind of journey and the kid has got a medical condition which prevents him from being accepted onto the flight which then breaks the family apart as they try to find ways around it and it's all about them trying to come back together regardless of whether they can make it to Greenland or not. It's all about if they're going to die, they want to die together. If they want to escape to Greenland, they want to escape to Greenland together. And it's a marvellous journey through the events that are going on. You do get some great, good effect shots. There are some great effects in there, but they're not the important aspect. They're not what you remember the film for. Right. What you remember it for is how they interact with other people who are trying to survive, how they come together how they break apart, how even in the worst of worst of humanity, some people try to do the right thing, whilst some people try to do the wrong thing, how mankind falls apart at the end of the world. It's all character study, and it's a beautiful film to sit and watch. Absolutely got a lot from this. I'm looking forward to revisiting it as well. Great. You feel, well, I, I was going to say, uh, you sold it to me, but I think, in fact, I sold it to you. Yeah, you, well, <laughs> you, you sold it to me back on that trailer. You had you thought that it looked interesting. I thought it just looked generic. Thankfully, you were right. So, <laughs> so thank you for proving me wrong. Before we get on to talking the WandaVision, uh, anything else? Yeah, I want to just do a quick mention of three other films that I've seen this week because I've been a busy man. So over on Sky, there was Villains, which is Bill Skarsgård and Micah Munro as criminals who are on the run, break down in the middle of nowhere, see a house, go in there, break in to try to find a way to get fuel for their car or steal a car if they can find one. And they find, chained up in the basement, a young girl. And then the homeowners return. And the homeowners are the most suburbia kind of mother and father kind of figures that you can possibly get. An all too perfect family kind of nightmare then plays out as they find themselves trapped in the house with these people who they wonder why they've got a little girl chained up in the basement. It's a black comedy. It smartly subverts the genre. 
that it's drawing from. And the performances from the cast is what makes it. It's maybe a tad forgettable, but it's not a wasted view. And I'd, I'd say, you know, give it a check out at some point. You might find something to like in there. The cast, Bill Skarsgård, Jeffrey Donovan, Kyra Sedgwick and Micah Munro are all absolutely marvellous and there's some great moments of hilarity in Amongst the Nightmare. Worth checking out. Um, also, a film on Netflix, a Korean sci-fi called Space Sweepers. Which is, I know, one of the most expensive uh, sci-fi films to come out of Korea. Oh, it looks it. It's sumptuous. Uh, it's about junk collectors picking up space debris surrounding Earth now that mankind has begun to ascend to the stars who find a girl who holds a large secret, one which the evil corporation who controls everything will do anything to either obtain or stop. At 136 minutes, it does struggle. And for the first about 40 minutes, I was losing interest. And the concept, which is Elysium mixed with Terry Gilliam kind of works, was a bit jarring. But once it got past 40 minutes, it starts to tell some backstory of the lead of the chief characters. And that's the point at which the film suddenly got interesting and suddenly got a heart to it. And I was hooked from that point on. I didn't look away from the screen. The space sequences look great. The characters do really, by the end of it, you're really rooting for them. It's worth seeing. Uh, just a quick pointer on that one. I started on it uh, and I didn't get much further than I thought the, the first few minutes, which look some absolutely amazing uh, effects work in that first few minutes, I, I didn't last. I just didn't engage with it, and I, I really, really tried. I thought, I thought, as I said, the, the beginning of it is is absolutely spectacular with some great, great effects work, but it just didn't hold my interest. And and uh, maybe a bit like you, maybe I made it to to just hang in there, but I I, yeah, I wasn't it, feeling it at all. I, it's only because I'm so stubborn that even if I'm absolutely hating something, I refuse to switch it off. That I stuck around, <laughs> but I can I can really get how. You know, for that first half hour in particular, it's hard to latch on to anything. Yeah. It's hard to really care about anything that's going on. And I think maybe the runtime of 136 minutes could have been significantly yeah. chopped down in order to make it a sharper film. And finally, Wolf Walkers. Now, this is a film that I've been wanting to see for a while, but it's on Apple TV, so I never got around to. Directed by Tom, uh, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. It's the third entry in Moore's Irish folklore trilogy, which has included The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. And it's a story about Robin Goodfellow, the daughter of a hunter, played by Sean Bean, who arrives in Ireland to hunt and slay a wolf pack threatening a township. Robin encounters a young girl who's a wolf walker, capable of becoming a wolf when she sleeps, and she soon finds herself afflicted with the same ability. With the town's ruler out to slay all wolves and dismissive of the myths and folklore of the superstitious town folk, she must find the pack leader of the wolves and fight to survive as a wolf walker whilst also being the daughter of a hunter. The animation is beautiful sketch animation with a unique style that makes it fit the folklore aspect and the voice acting and soundtrack all match up well to the themes and the style of the film. It's a great traditional animation and a great modern day folk tale. Yeah, fancy this one. Since I saw the trailer for it, I was in on that and I thought it looked great. Uh, it's just been a time of getting around to seeing it. And I think it's it's uh, it's been a hard sell as a family, uh, family film, but I, I, I do want to hopefully, I think it would be best seen as a family film. So I'm waiting to, uh, uh, waiting to see that one. Okay, so we've been talking about it every week. We're going to do a quick roundup on our thoughts on episode five of WandaVision. So we find uh, Wanda and Viz now in uh, basically a family ties era as they've moved into the 80s in their TV sitcom world. 
Uh, everything was bright and colourful with uh, some quite interesting nods, especially with uh, Agatha in her uh, uh, 80s workout gear. And of course, now the series is jumping between the two worlds. Uh, and to be honest, while there's uh, um, every week a little bit more of the puzzle is revealed, every week we get a little bit more background, there's still a long way to go with some what I thought was uh, some, some red herrings. But for me, this was the best episode of the series so far. Yeah, it was a solid episode this week. Now that they've got into this kind of pattern of mixing what's happening outside with what's happening inside, so we're still getting the sitcom aspects with what's happening outside the dome, we're getting to see both sides of the story play out at the same time. And this one dropped us so much information whilst also opening so many questions again. Yeah. The character of Agnes, which, come on, it's Agatha Harkness, isn't it? It's definitely Agatha <laughs> Harkness. It has to be Agatha Harkness because they're drawing it upon the run in West Coast Avengers, aren't they? So many people are saying this is House of M. It's not. This is West Coast Avengers. Well, that's that's my my theory. And, and you know what? Uh, the one thing about this show is it, it's 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 set up its theories. Fanboys and fangirls have gone for it, and then in as we saw in last week's episode, they've uh, um, they've they've held it up very quickly. This is not like Lost, where you're going to be waiting six seasons yeah. to find out what's going on. They they kind of let's talk about the B guy, for instance. They kind of uh, um, uh, reveal what what's going on very very quickly and, and knock those theories down. But this one was a was a, a mic drop of an episode. Yeah, uh, the 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 final shot. I mean, we knew that something was coming. We knew of the casting, but to see that character brought into it, whether he's the same character. Probably not. I'm trying to do stuff without major spoilers. Hey, look, look we'll just say if you if you <laughs> want to, if you've not seen it, which you know it's been a week now, and the next episode drops uh, uh, in a couple of days. Um, the appearance of Quicksilver at the end. Spoiler yeah. alert. Uh, and with being recast, which was uh, I, I I think I texted you straight away and went how meta. So we've now <laughs> got Evan Peters who played Quicksilver in the X Men franchise seemingly cast as as Pietro instead of the original played by Aaron Taylor Johnson out of Age of Ultron staying with me folks you really need to as uh, these two realities have collided it was either great fan casting or it was a what the hell moment which had started so much theorizing online some people are theorizing that he's actually the main villain and he's going to be revealed to actually be Mephisto but everything at the moment is theorizing you know we said last week that we don't believe for one second that all of this is Wanda's doing we do believe that she's being manipulated and controlled yeah and that that came out uh, in a couple of lines of dialogue where Vision talked to his work colleague and and said uh, about being controlled and 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 even Wanda herself admitted that she's not yeah. controlling all these other people that are in there. So that throws uh, over to the Agatha idea as to why we still don't know. Uh, it did prove that she was um, the, how dangerous Wanda is. Where there was that little yeah. nod to uh, Magneto when she turned the soldiers on. Uh, yeah. uh, the head of uh, head of sword, um, you know the way that the kids grow up very very quickly. Um, there's a lot to go on, and of course, I think more so was the uh, the line where she says, uh, "Do we want to do this again?" Yeah, which made it just in- incredibly weird at that stage, as though she knows that she's in a series. She's just playing along for it. Yeah, which is why, like, I'm convinced. Yeah, it's definitely back of the Harkness because she's aware of the magics that are going on and she's protected from it. Yeah. It is probably 
the best example of water cooler entertainment that we've had since Game of Thrones. Absolutely. And I'm so pleased that it's dropping weekly. Um, I think it gives us an opportunity to, to be able to talk about it like this. I think if it was, uh, if it was all dropped in one go, uh, I don't think it would have quite as much of the impact. And, and, and hey, this is how we used to do TV. I like the I like the dropping weekly on it absolutely, and it's worth noting that once One uh, Division finishes, pretty much we're going to start the following week talking about uh, Winter Soldier and Falcon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's you know what? Who would have thought that One Division would would have set the bar as as highly as it's done? And uh, kudos to the cast and um, Elizabeth Olsen. Absolutely, absolutely deserves to be nominated for uh, uh, an Emmy for this one. I think she's she's really knocking out of the park. With it, with this performance each week. Worth noting that her accent came back. Yeah, which is I saw that. Down. As well as One Division this weekend, things that have got my eye out for News of the World dropped on Netflix. Yeah, looking forward to that. Which tells about Captain Jefferson Kidd, who was a veteran of three wars, and he's going town to town in America telling the stories of the world. Uh, on Amazon, there's the map of tiny perfect things, which sees teenage Mark trapped happily in a Groundhog Day style time loop. And then one day he meets Margaret, who's also stuck in the loop, and they set about creating a perfect day and seeking how to take their love out of the repeating loop. And on Now TV, Dragon Rider, which is a family animated film adapted from the novels by Cornelia Funk, who follows a silver dragon named Fire Drake and his friends as they search for a mythical safe haven in the Himalayas. Yeah, I saw that. It had a How to Train Your Dragon vibe going off on it. The, the stories that it's adapted from actually came out before the stories that the How to Train Your Dragon films were adapted from. So this kind of predates it, but it took longer to be made into an animated movie. And so now it's getting unfairly compared to How to Train Your Dragon. Whether it's any good, well, we'll have that news for you next week. And that's about it for this week. Uh, before we go, though, we always do this and we talk about our neat things, things that we've watched, read, played, listened to. Uh, Andy, what's your neat thing for the last week? Now, you know how occasionally you say how you're late to the party and you'll talk about like Last of Us or something like that? Yeah, often. <laughs> well, well, I'm extremely late to this party. But I'm currently playing Skyrim for the first time. Ooh, I've never played it. Never been drawn into it. I know I know people who, who love it. It's not my bag in game playing, but I've heard good things about it. Well, I, I've played other Elder Scrolls games. I've played uh, Morrowind. I've played Elder Scrolls Online. I've played pretty much the whole series. I've just never played Skyrim for some reason, even though I've had it on my computer for the past five years or so. But I decided, now's the time. Let's give it a shot. And... I've not just been playing it for the first time, but I also coincided it to streaming on Twitch. So all my sessions on it are getting streamed on Twitch as I discover this game that people have raved on about so much. And you know what? I'm two sessions in, approximately two and a half hours worth of gameplay so far, and I'm hooked. And I cool. love it. Um, it's visually spectacular. The story threads are engaging. There's a lot of detail, rich detail within the world. And I'm refusing to do what I've seen other people doing. I've seen so many people who are doing a Twitch stream of this, because I've gone to see what other people are doing with it, who they make a mistake and so they reload their previous autosave. I'm not doing that. So I've already accidentally made myself a fugitive and I've got to deal with that. I'm already getting hunted down in one place that I just need to get into to hand in a quest. So I, I need to wait until things calm down so I can either sneak into the city or go and pay a fee in order to get in there. I love the detail of it. I love how I'm allowed to attack people randomly. I'm allowed to pickpocket people. You shouldn't do, and you get a, a price put on your head. 
but it's so much freedom. The kind of freedom that you normally get in massively multiplayer games, but on a single player version. Really good game. Thoroughly enjoying it. Excellent. Well, uh, my neat thing is uh, what I've been reading. Last year, with the sad passing of Chadwick Boseman, um, Comixology gave away for free entire runs of, of Black Panther, going right back to, not right to the beginning, but with the Don McGregor run in Jungle Action, which was absolutely famous for uh, setting the scene and of, of giving um, the Panther a, a personality rather than just the, the version that had appeared in uh, in the Fantastic Four and the Avengers, but we they gave us uh, Jack Kirby's run on it. They gave us the Christopher uh, Priest version, which again introduces the character of Everett Rost and and served as a as a backdrop for uh, the movie. They gave us the run uh, by Reginald Hudlin, you know, the filmmaker, and again, which which inspired a lot of of uh, of what happened in the movie. And then they gave us the run. Uh, the most current run by the author Tarnisi Coates, draw, drawn by uh, Brian Stelfreeze. And and this is the, the run that I'm on right now. And boy, what a great series. I mean, it's just beautifully, beautifully written. Uh, and and uh, um, the words just flow off the page. And, and, it, and, it, and it, it did the thing that the movie did really, really well. And it made Black Panther African. Uh, and and this this series gives you a, an insight into this into this world where you you feel a, a, a slight outsider because of it. And uh, uh, apart from being beautifully drawn and being beautifully written, it's just an engrossing series. I'm through volume one right now. Can't wait to start on on volume two. But if you've not had a chance to read the the, the most current run on Black Panther and uh, you've enjoyed the movies, these two work in tandem with each other. Um, but it does have this this beautiful illustrative style and this sense of it being African and uh, uh, and and that's what's made it just an uh, an absolute marvelous marvelous run. Fantastic. Uh, and that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more reviews, more views, uh, and hopefully some news on uh, the ever changing world of One Division. Have a good week, Andy. And you, mate. It's always a pleasure. We love doing this for you. And uh, I hope you've loved the show. But before we go, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Punk.